to be seated. Good evening to everybody here, there, and everywhere. We love you and uh, thankful for all the different means that we have to be together here uh, tonight. And Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we pick things up tonight in Luke chapter 6. Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he, that is Jesus, went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and they ate them, rubbing them with their hands. And some of the Pharisees came not to Jesus, but they came to the disciples saying, why are you doing what is not lawful for you to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answered them, knowing that the the question was really directed toward him. And he stepped in and he answered them, saying, Have you not even read this, uh, this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he went into the house of God, took and ate of the showbread, and also gave some to those uh, with him, which is not lawful but for any but the priests to eat. And then he said to them, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So the disciples are engaged in a a simple activity, and they are walking. There are no In-N-Out burgers. Uh, There are no Denny's or whatever restaurant you want to choose to have in your mind. In those days, if you were traveling from one place to another, you were kind of either carried your food or you were at the mercy of what you could kind of find to eat in the fields that you were passing through. So it wasn't unusual for a person to take uh, in passing a a field of grain, to take a head of grain, uh, rub it in your hands, separate the chaff from the wheat, and then chew on the uh, wheat kernel for nourishment. There's nothing in the law of Moses that forbade that uh, at all. The law of Moses did forbid uh, harvesting another person's field or harvesting on the Sabbath day, and, but he did not forbid this. This passage is interesting to me, and there are several others that are like it in the Scriptures, in that uh, so often I've heard through the years the prosperity teachers teaching that Jesus wore designer clothes and, and he was wealthy, all of them were wealthy in order to kind of accommodate their uh, particular doctrine and, and uh, their teaching. But here we see that Jesus lived very, very simply. The disciples lived very, very simply. The reason that the Pharisees confronted uh, the disciples over this issue was uh, this was a violation of their interpretation of the Sabbath, not the the, uh, Sabbath law itself. And so they considered the fact that they would take and grab the grain, uh, rub it in their hands, blow off 
uh, winnow the chief, uh, chaff rather from uh, the wheat and eat it, that that represented uh, harvesting and then, uh, and, and then breaking the chaff off of the wheat, uh, winnowing and then eating that it constituted uh, labor. But that was their interpretation of, of all of this. Uh, and uh, not what the law of Moses actually said. And what they're doing and what Jesus allowed his disciples to do was no violation of the law of Moses at all. Now, it is fascinating, as I pointed out, that uh, these uh, Pharisees, the Pharisees are the legalists of uh, that age, and they come not, and they don't bring their complaint to Jesus. They bring their complaint to Jesus' disciples. And they did that deliberately. It wasn't the fact that Jesus was occupied and they couldn't quite get an appointment with him. They knew exactly what they were doing. And what they were trying to do was to cast doubt in the minds of the disciples concerning uh, Jesus' respect toward and his obedience to the law of Moses. They were trying to plant the idea in the disciples that your master that you're following has no real concern for the law of Moses. And that's what a legalist will so often do. But there's many people that are in this camp. They will, uh, 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 religious people, even in the body of Christ, they will never go to the person who can answer their question the most adequately and really take care of their problem. Uh, but they begin to work the edges, begin to cast doubt upon, certainly if people are willing to cast doubt upon Jesus, they're willing to cast doubt on, on any leadership, and they're trying to work the crowd toward uh, their end. It's always a dangerous thing when you get that sense that that is uh, happening to you. Somebody is usually up to uh, no good uh, at all. And Jesus' response here to uh, the accusation, uh, first he kind of puts them in their place in verse 3, where he says, have you not even read this? And he begins to quote a passage from the, uh, the Old Testament, uh, from the, the historical book of First uh, Samuel chapter 21 involving David. But these guys considered themselves to be the experts in the law of Moses, so for Jesus to say, hey guys, did you kind of miss this incident in the, in the Bible in terms of coming to your conclusions about what a fidelity to keeping the Word of God is or isn't? And clearly they didn't take this into account, and he's bringing this to their uh, mind. Clearly Jesus has a far greater understanding of the Word of God and its application and the heart of God than anybody else. But he, he reminds them now that what he's going to speak to them, he's going to speak to them from the Scriptures and they need to recognize the authority uh, of that. And he recited a time when uh, King David, David before he became king, uh, actually did violate uh, the law of Moses in this regard. Again, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, David is a young man. He is already anointed to become the next king in, uh, in uh, Israel. And he's being presently uh, in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, 
timetable presently being mightily persecuted uh, by the present king, King Saul. He's running for his life. He's running for his life from Saul's uh, attempt to kill him with his men, and they have no food. They're hungry. So David goes to Abimelech the priest in uh, the city of Nob, and uh, he asks him for any food that he might have to give. And Abimelech says, I don't have any food to give you except the loaves that represent the 12 tribes of Israel associated to, to, with the worship, worship of the Lord. But those, uh, you know, those are only for uh, the, the priests, and because of the, the urgency of David's need, uh, Abimelech gave him the 12 loaves of, of showbread to David and to his men so that they would be uh, nourished. And you notice in verse 4 that Jesus, just as plain as can be, he declared uh, that that bread that was given to David was not lawful to eat except for the priests. And David was no uh, priest. And yet in that passage, and you can study it on your own later, God never condemns David uh, for what he did in that situation, even though it was technically unlawful. And of course, anyone who would read that account from David's life uh, would look at that and realize that David never violated the spirit of the law uh, in, in eating the bread and that God had an understanding of the circumstances and he had mercy for David in that situation. And I think kind of the, the question that Jesus is posing to uh, the Pharisees, to these legalists here on this, is to ask them whether they would rather have seen uh, the greatest king that Israel ever knew. Would they have rather seen David die of starvation before he ever became uh, king as opposed to uh, partaking and eating of, of that bread as God graciously allowed uh, the doing of it. It is uh, worth noting that David is a result of the grace that God extended to him in that, that David never used that as an excuse to violate the law of Moses for the rest of his life. He didn't look and go, wow, oh boy, God will blink here, blink there, that kind of, you know, you can play fast and loose with the law of Moses. He never understood, misunderstood God's grace toward him as uh, him now being able to, to uh, look at the law of Moses uh, in, that, uh, in that way. And so the, the Sabbath law, Jesus is saying, was never intended to push uh, hungry men into starvation, especially as was the case in David's life when Dave, the hunger of David and his men was due to uh, the sins of others. The only reason that David and his men were in the situation that they were in, in their constant flight and, and uh, in, their, in their hunger was because of the sins of King Saul and the nation of Israel as a whole, their refusal to recognize David as king. David would be eating sumptuously if they had recognized that. And the application to Jesus in all of this uh, is that the only reason that Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field and partaking of grain in an unrefined, uh, not even that edible of, of, a, of a situation in terms of the food, its preparation was because of the sin of the Jewish 
religious leaders and the sin of the nation of Israel as a whole in their failure to recognize Jesus as not only their Messiah, but to recognize him uh, as their king and then to uh, make him uh, king. And Jesus closes all of it there in verse 5. The Son of Man, speaking of himself, is also Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus teaches them concerning the specific thing that they were asking him about. And then Jesus, uh, it's not a throw-in, Jesus never did a throw-in, but he, he brought to bear, that's better, brought to bear a lesson for them uh, that they weren't looking for. And what Jesus was declaring in, in, in himself as being Lord uh, over the Sabbath is the fact that nobody knows more about the Sabbath, nobody knows more about how to interpret the Sabbath than he does. But it was also in declaring himself the Lord of the Sabbath, every Jew understood that the Sabbath was brought uh, into the law of Moses by God himself. And Jesus uses this incident to once again inform the Jewish religious leaders of his deity, that he is uh, the Son of God and God the Son. And then in verse um, 6, the incidents move on, and we're told now it happened uh, on another Sabbath also. So it's happening on a Sabbath, supposed to be a day of rest among the Jews. A lot of laws came into uh, to bear on a Sabbath day. So we're on the Sabbath day again, the Saturday. It happened on another Sabbath uh, also that he entered into Uh, the synagogue, and he taught. And a man was there whose right hand was uh, withered. And I don't know how you view a withered right hand, but uh, somehow, whether by disease or accident or something, it's withered. It has no life in it. He has no control over it to to move it. It's useless uh, to him. And uh, that man is there, his right hand is withered. And so the scribes and the Pharisees who were in the synagogue there on that Sabbath day, they watched Jesus closely. I mean, uh, they were hanging on every word that he spoke. No, that's not the kind of heart they uh, brought to any interaction with Jesus. But they watched him closely whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation uh, against him. And so, again, in the law of Moses, the law of Moses allowed on, uh, on the Saturday that if somebody had an accident uh, and they were bleeding on some level or bleeding profusely, you could uh, stem the bleeding but you could not stitch the wound. You had to wait till the next day to do that. Um, If somebody broke a bone, uh, that you could make them comfortable, but you couldn't set the bone until uh, the next day. And this was their understanding of of the, of the Sabbath law. And so here you have a man with a withered hand, and you could only do for a person what was necessary to sustain their life, but not to correct the situation. 
And here is a man with a withered hand. They viewed this as not any kind of an emergency uh, at all. And uh, so under their understanding of the law of Moses was that if Jesus dealt with this man's need, it was a non-necessity and thus it was a violation of the law of Moses. It wasn't a violation of the law of Moses, but it was a violation of their interpretation of uh, the law uh, of Moses. And so they're actually hoping that he will heal this man so that they can then accuse him of being a lawbreaker, of having uh, complete disregard for uh, the law of Moses. And so this is their attitude as they're watching all of this. Uh, You know, it will leave uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, someday and God willing, we'll head into the Gospel of John and on Sunday nights, uh, for sure, it will be the last time that I teach the Synoptic Gospels. And uh, so, it, even though I brought it up in the other pass, in the other Gospels as it's come up, it's still important uh, for it to be uh, repeated. As you head into John, 90% of the Gospel according to John is not found in the rest of the Gospels. And so, that's like all new territory. But something that they knew about Jesus, these religious leaders, number one, they knew about his power to heal. They knew he had the power to heal this man. And and instead of looking at that and recognizing uh, that we ought to take a second look at this guy because we don't have too many traveling rabbis that come into this synagogue who have the power at their word and at their will to heal a man of a withered arm. And these miracles, of course, were a work of the Holy Spirit to testify to Jesus' claims to be the Messiah and to be the King of Israel. But they were absolutely in their hatred of him and the threat that they thought he was to their religious establishment, they weren't even willing to entertain uh, that, that thought at, at all. And so they, they are waiting and hoping he will heal him, which is just where, where the, what they're, how they're working their minds concerning Jesus. It just took way more effort than just making him their savior and, and their Lord. But this is where they were. They also knew something about Jesus. They knew that when Jesus walked into any uh, situation, and certainly into any kind of a spiritual setting, that he would always notice the person with the greatest need. And they recognized that that man with the withered uh, arm, that that was the man who who had the most readily recognizable greatest need within the room. So they knew Jesus, they weren't saying, oh, I hope he sees him, I hope he sees him, I hope he sees the guy with the withered hand. They knew he would see the man with the withered hand. Their only question was whether he would heal him or not. And I think that it's important to understand this about Jesus. Every time I preach it or I hear it, it ministered to the, uh, an important truth to me once again uh, as a Christian. And uh, in order, that in order to be like Christ, when we enter into different environments, and certainly into spiritual environments, that uh, our focus goes to who is the person 
in the greatest need in, in this environment, out in the courtyard, in a sanctuary, in the fellowship hall, and the home fellowship, whatever uh, it might be. And it was this, this was the first passage I ever shared a little devotional from when I was a brand new, uh, brand new Christian. And it's so easy for us as Christians when we go to a church, and we go to a church for a long time, we have friends, we have relationships. Oftentimes, we're so busy during the week working and doing a lot of different things. This is the one time of the week that we can catch up with everybody like that. And so, it's also in our comfort zone to make a beeline to all of the people that we already know. Instead of having this into our thinking as well, and that is who out here, for instance, if we would walk out into the courtyard and, and see all of the people that are engaged in conversation with one another, but who's at the periphery and nobody's talking to them. And especially if we don't recognize them. And they may, may be uh, somebody that's coming to church for the very first time in their life. Imagine uh, the way that church and Christianity is portrayed in the culture uh, today and uh, how negatively, imagine how much we as individuals have kind of an aversion to entering into environments that we're not familiar with. It's a big deal for a person to kind of reach the end of their rope in life and say, I'm going to go to church tomorrow, or I'm going to go to church on, on Wednesday night, I hear this is going on or something, and then to actually do it. And the, and the worst thing that can happen to them is for them to come and nobody notices them. Nobody reaches out to them in, in their need. I mean, we, it doesn't take anything for us to put ourselves in their shoes because that would be the most miserable feeling for us uh, altogether. But it's more than just personal where none of us likes that kind of thing to happen to us. They would then be coming to conclusions about God, about God, how God's people operate. And so it wouldn't be a bad thing. I'm not going to introduce any new legalism, though I've got a Pharisee living inside of me. A scribe as well, but not so big of a scribe, more of a Pharisee. But, uh, but to come to church and say, I'm going to go to church today. I do want to talk to other people that I know that I'll run into, but I'm going to determine to say hi to one or two people each week that I don't know. Or I'm going to determine to do a scan of the fellowship hall or the scan of the courtyard out there, and if I see anyone standing uncomfortably alone, that I will go up and say uh, hi to them. I know that, you know, in terms of uh, a man approaching a woman, there are dynamics related to this. I'm saying be led of the Lord. But if everybody does what uh, this kind of thing, it'll all get taken care of. This world, I don't have to tell you about what this world is becoming like. And uh, so hostile, it is, uh, it is fragmenting into tribes. It's not a good thing what's going on. And people are desperate for love. They're desperate for a place that will love them, a place that they can 
come and uh, be a part of something and people that love them. And so this is uh, a responsibility that uh, not only do I have as a pastor and the other pastors have, but it's a responsibility of all Christians if we're going to be uh, like Christ. And so something to, uh, to think about and, uh, as, we're, uh, as we're attending church and looking for that, that kind of person and that kind of, of need. And so Jesus understands the dynamics of what's going on uh, because he knew their thoughts. And so he said to the man, Jesus isn't going to play this game of, of hiding here and, and uh, pretending that uh, what's going on in the room isn't actually going on in the room. So he had uh, said to the man with the withered hand, arise and stand here. So he has him stand right up in front of everybody and uh, commands him to... And the man arose and he stood. And then Jesus said, not to the man first, he said to them, he said, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do evil, uh, to save life uh, or to destroy? And so he poses that uh, question uh, to them and, uh, and Jesus let them know with real authority uh, that God never intended the Sabbath uh, to ever limit the expression of doing good uh, for people. And if their interpretation of the Sabbath law restricted the expression of doing good for other people uh, in their need, then their interpretation of the law did not represent the heart or the mind of uh, of God. He poses the question to them, and uh, they at least understand what he's saying to a degree. And the reason that we can know that is their response is silent. They do not, uh, because his question is an answer, and they recognize it uh, as such. He has uh, settled the issue uh, there uh, uh, publicly uh, to them. And then uh, we're told that he looked at, when he had looked at them, Mark's gospel tells us that he looked at them with anger, just their hard-heartedness uh, at a person, uh, that they would treat a person uh, in this way, to just use him as a prop in a service to try and trap Jesus. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as uh, the other. And so Jesus here uh, and absolutely irrationally, you notice in the next verse that uh, they were filled with rage. Now that's a rational response, isn't it? Uh, and they discussed with one another uh, what uh, they might do with Jesus. And, and here they begin to plot uh, Jesus' uh, death over his uh, healing of this, the withered hand of, of this, uh, this man. And, uh, and so completely further just showing themselves to be completely out of touch with, with the heart of God on all of this. It is important uh, to recognize, if you've never noticed related to the passage, that when Jesus tells this man with a withered hand to stretch forth his uh, hand, he calls on him to do something that is physically impossible for him to do. 
And when you stop in that little moment in this scene, between the moment that Jesus gives him his instruction to this man and the moment that this man obeys that command, uh, you can, if you, if you just go to a still frame right there and you put yourself right there and you don't know what's going to happen, it's very easy to look at that scene and say, look at what Jesus is doing. Look at how cruel he is. Look at how he's mocking a cripple here uh, in the church. And he doesn't do it privately. He has him stand up in front of the entire congregation of all of his peers, of the place of his spiritual support, and he asks him to do something that is physically impossible for him to do. And it was physically impossible for him to do. But the moment that the man began, he began to obey the command that was given by Jesus, he discovered the power to obey the command. And the healing came in his life. And the reason that I mentioned this is, number one, we are to read the entire Bible in, in that, that grid. And very often, I've been a pastor for 35 years now, there's a lot of winds of doctrine that have come through the body of Christ through this town over that, that period of time. And uh, very, very heavily in the past, but it's not as heavy today simply because it's been so accepted by so uh, many Christians that now it doesn't even make a ripple. And there is this perception, certainly by non-Christians, that the Bible is uh, so simplistic. Uh, you know, God gives commandments, and then you obey the commandments, and your life changes, and, uh, and, and that's how uh, they view it. Christianity is something where God gives commandments, and then, and then you obey the commandments in your own strength, but nothing is further from the truth. We obey God's commandments and the power of the Holy Spirit as Christians, and then as we obey those commandments, we discover the power to obey those commandments. And it always requires faith on our part. Jesus could have just healed him without asking him to stretch out his hand, but he doesn't. He requires him to demonstrate some faith in the Word of God, the command of God, to then see uh, the fulfillment of what God has promised. And so often people look at Christianity and they think it's this cruel thing. You just simplify everything. Don't you know that man's problems are much more complicated than you make them? in terms of just learn the Word of God, obey the Word of God, and your life will be changed. And yet, it isn't more complicated uh, than that at all. When God gives a command, always there is the power to obey that command. The only question in the entire progression is whether I will respond in grace to what he has told me to do and then discover that power or accuse him of being too simplistic or uh, asking me to do something that I can't do and then I remain in my spiritually crippled condition, whatever the crippled condition uh, might be. And Jesus does this continually in his word. And, and, the, and God the Father does the same thing. We just want Him to come 
and he knows we got a problem, and God now take it away. And that is so the year 2020 in the United States of America. It doesn't demand any uh, discipline of me. It doesn't demand any faith of me. It doesn't demand any, anything of me. Just do it. And then if he doesn't do it on my uh, terms, then somehow he failed me. But there's always faith involved. Because Jesus wants to not only heal this man and make him whole, but he wants to enlarge the man's understanding of his power, of who he is. There's a relationship that's involved. And so if God just came in our lives, and I'll talk more about this next Sunday morning, but if he just came into our lives and he just did everything that we uh, wanted him to do and nothing was involved on our part in terms of obedience or in terms of faith, what pathetic, uh, little, miserable, awful spiritual beings we would be. What if you had a child and you raised that child uh, to do everything for that child. They're called helicopter moms and dads, I guess, in the past. But everything was done for them. There was never any faith that was required, never any obedience before it was required. We knew ahead of time what they wanted, gave it to them before even they knew. What kind of a child would you have at age 18 or 21? Certainly not a child ready for the world. And uh, you better have uh, a room in the basement for them for the rest of their life because they have not been trained now to go out and to live in the nitty-gritty of life out there. And the same thing is true spiritually. God could do all of it for us, but he is also deepening our relationship with the Lord and he is training us for trials and difficulties, ministry opportunities that he knows are coming next within our lives. When you read any commandment in the, the Bible for the rest of your life and you look at it and say, that's so simplistic, that's impossible, nobody could do that. He's minimizing you know, what I've been through. He's minimized my emotional damage or my physical damage or my mental damage or whatever it might uh, be that some trauma related to my life. He's not doing that at all. He's not doing that at all. He's just asking for that step of faith so we can then experience the miracle that comes with obeying His Word. And then once we do, and then we discover, wow, I can obey His Word in this area of my life, despite how mangled this part of my life is. And now the trajectory for victory in that area of my life, all of that has been uh, started. And so in uh, uh, this uh, second encounter uh, on a Sabbath day recorded for us in Luke. Now in verse 12, it came to pass in those days uh, that Jesus went out on uh, the mountain to pray and he continued all night in prayer uh, to God. And then when it was daybreak, he called his disciples to himself 
and from them he chose twelve uh, among uh, 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 he chose twelve whom he also named uh, apostles. And so Jesus takes and uh, he picks his apostles. He does it after uh, a night of prayer up on a mountain. The opposition against Jesus in his three and a half years of his public ministry it's mounting. It's getting greater and, and greater now. He realizes he needs to begin to train a specific 12 for the hardship that is going to come uh, following and the future of the church in, in, after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And, and it was going to require apostles and in the control of, of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so he, he, he goes up and he chooses 12 from what was probably, well, not probably, absolutely doubtless, a much larger group. Otherwise, he would just say, okay, I need 12. Uh, I only got 12. So, well, what kind of choosing would be involved in that? So there's a large group of, of people that are following him, including men, and he chooses 12 uh, uh, from among, uh, among that number. And certainly, in, as a result of prayer to the Father uh, that night. I, I love G, uh, Gail Irwin's quip related to this, and uh, 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 that you know, if this was the best that Jesus could come up, I'm paraphrasing him, Jesus could come up with after an, uh, an entire night of prayer was these 12 because they were, um, you know, a little rough around the edges and uh, pretty carnal and all of those things, but he got it right. And, and, and Gail always brings it to himself and when he says, the only thing that makes him wonder about God is God's choice of him. And there should always be an awe and a, a sense of um, not understanding why he's chosen any of us to do what he's chosen uh, for us to do. And so he uh, called them uh, to him. The names of them were Simon, who is also called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, uh, Philip and Bartholomew, uh, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot. And uh, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became uh, a traitor. And so he appoints the twelve. These are the names uh, of uh, the twelve. It is, I think it's very important to understand uh, and and to look at this. You know, we look at the scriptures from a culture, and uh, the culture of the United States of America, and to... Uh, to understand a little bit about the culture that they're in. Now, one of the things that, um, for instance, um, in my generation, I'm going to make uh, 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 generalities related to this. There are exceptions to all of this. But we know that this younger generation is taking uh, longer to marry. Uh, so they're marrying later in life. They're, uh, they're marrying uh, well into their 20s or into their 30s. They want to have a secure job. They want to have a livelihood and things like that. And, um, and then maybe a home and, and all of these things in place before uh, they, they uh, uh, become married. Uh, back in uh, 1973 when I graduated and then 1975 when I married Karen, I don't know about anywhere else in the United States of America, but in Napa, California, uh, if you found someone that was willing to marry you, 
and, uh, and look pretty good. Uh, you don't wait 10 years to take care of that. But morally, it was a different environment as well, too. I mean, you married, and then you were just going to work out all of the problems, and everything as you got, you got going, you were just happy to be married. So within our culture, um, uh, people are, and I don't know, it's probably a, a, something that has to do with the fashioning of the culture, the expectations of, of the culture, uh, conforming of the culture, that it's become that within, within our culture, for, uh, for better or for worse. I'm not saying one is better uh, than the other. And, uh, but we wait a long time to take major steps within our lives. It is in, with these uh, 12 that Jesus calls, uh, John, the Apostle John, is probably still in his teens. And the others are in their early 20s. Now, they were, they were raised in a completely different culture than ours. Our culture is a, is a very different one in, in terms of um, uh, the addiction to comfort and uh, allowing people luxury, money, margins allows people the luxury of taking uh, longer to grow up than other parts of the world where you better be grown up by 12 or you're going to end up a casualty in that, that nation. So all the world isn't like this. So in a Jewish culture, a young man would have his bar mitzvah at 13. He was considered now by the family and by uh, the, the Jew, uh, Jews as a whole as now being a man. His relationship uh, with God was no longer the responsibility of his parents or reflection upon his parents. This was a time for him to get his own relationship with God at 13 and then move forward in it for the rest of his life. And given that, given significant responsibility, not only spiritually, but in other ways within the culture, and that grew people up much more quickly. But it is interesting to notice how young these men were. And I say that for those of you, it has no application to me anymore. It did when I first moved here 35 years ago. But, uh, and, uh, and actually longer than that, but to be an encouragement to the fact that don't wait forever. Don't, when God calls you to do something and you know he's called you to do it, never ever uh, let anyone despise your youth in that, that regard. Do it. Uh, step out and obey God's call to do that. The calling is everything. If God calls a person to do it at 14, 16, 18, 22, that's all that matters. The calling is the assurance of success. God will make sure we're successful as long as we step out into it. I remember listening to a, um, a sermon somebody gave to me years and years ago. We were on 10th and F, and there was a, uh, a missionary who was uh, teaching at Big Valley Grace at that, uh, that morning, and uh, somebody handed me the, the tape from that day. And, uh, it, was, and it was an excellent, excellent teaching, but he, he challenged the, the audience, and he said, 
Do you know uh, what the greatest enemy to foreign missions is in the United States of America? He said, Christian parents who when their kids uh, believe, now uh, uh, anybody ought to ask their parents for their insight on, uh, on something uh, and, and talk things over with them in, in that light if the relationship is spiritual and it's healthy. Uh, but the point that he made is that uh, Christian parents do to their Christian children what the culture is doing uh, now in, in, in kind of spades so many years later. And that is, wait a second, wait until you have a job, wait until you have a career, wait until you have a home, wait until you're married, wait until you have all of these accomplishments. And he says, the problem is, is by the time they're 30 years old, and that calling is now 10 years old, what you've done is now instead of being a person of faith wanting to go out and fulfill that calling, uh, now they're encumbered by all of these things. It's hard for them to break away from them, and they will become a good, decent, lifelong Christian uh, sitting and serving in that church for the rest of their life, but they will never fulfill what God called them to do. And my point is, is to obey God uh, when, when He uh, tells us to, to go. When... when uh, um, and I don't like to tell stories uh, about me except when I'm the hero of them. And uh, so that's why I'm endlessly telling stories about myself. Those are the only ones I care to remember. But uh, when, when I started uh, the, the ca- coming here to Modesto uh, to start Calvary Chapel of Modesto, I uh, took things over uh, for Fra- a gentleman by Fra- named Frank Epolito. He's now a Calvary pastor in Vineland, New Jersey. But I started driving over to teach uh, the morning Bible study. I was three and a half years old in the Lord. I, I mean, I, di- I didn't know the Bible. I had listened to it on, with Pastor Chuck Smith's uh, tapes multiple times. I had read it multiple times. But to know that First Peter had a theme, that the whole book had a point, that Second Peter did, that the Gospel of Luke had an emphasis, I didn't know any of those things. And yet God uh, told us to go and fill this need that was being uh, vacated. Absolutely uh, unequipped. I mean, the whole work should have been buried instantly, uh, just under the weight of my uh, inexperience. And yet, we took the step of faith. We sold everything that we had, came to this uh, city, and started. And again, the calling is everything. God added what needed to to, uh, be added. It isn't that I didn't make lots of mistakes. I did. But The interesting thing about all of that, to me, is that when the Lord called us to go and and come and start uh, that church, He knew what we didn't know, and that the church that we went out from was going to go through a terrible, terrible season. And the church would go from hundreds and hundreds of people uh, down to probably 50 people. A very, very ugly, messy split. 
And if we had stayed in that town and said, I'm not equipped to do this, I don't know enough of the Bible, I'd, and come under my own wisdom, I have no doubt Karen and I would have been swallowed up in all of, uh, of the conflict, all of the division, all of the bitterness that then filled that town in many people's lives for a long, long time. God knows what he's uh, doing, knows what he's talking about when he calls us uh, to do things. The other thing that happens too is that you look and you say, well, how do you feel about things 35 uh, years later? Well, I feel like I've arrived. I feel like I'm amazing and uh, compared to be, uh, when I came so long ago. But listen, I state the obvious. You, you recognize that. I, sorry for making you uncomfortable. That isn't the truth at all. Uh, One of the things, the reason that God calls people like me, and it's important not only for people like me to know this, but for you to know this, that he calls the weak things, the things that are not strong, the feeble uh, things uh, of the world, vessels like me, in order that when he uses us, it will be so obvious that God did it, that he will receive the glory. Evidently, it is a, a, a tremendous challenge for God in who he chooses to use somebody and for that person to allow God to receive the glory and not to derive the explanation for what God has done through their life back to themselves. And so this is why he chooses people uh, uh, like me and like the worship team and everyone else. We come out of that hallway, we come out to start the service. No one is more conscious of the fact that we are unable to make even the smallest spiritual dent in the need of even one life that we're going to interact with in, in a moment than we are, because that gulf is uh, infinite. Only God can make our Christian service or a Christian service uh, supernatural, but he will do that. And I, I'm, I'm being long-winded about it, but I don't think excessively so. Not in my mind. I'll get a good night's sleep and uh, not feel guilty over it. But don't wait and, and, and wait and wait and wait and wait until you're a certain age and you're a certain this and a certain that. There's nothing wrong with taking and saying, I feel like God has called me to do this and, uh, and have that strong sense of that. There's safety in the multitude of counselors to so talk to a pastor uh, that you respect, talk to loved ones that you respect, and, but never are they to make the decision. It's simply to make sure you don't have a blind spot related uh, to it and never to be talked out of it in, in any way. So that's an important part of taking a step like they're taking uh, in, in, in things, but to always obey that calling. There are reasons, not only for his calling, but reasons for the timing of his calling. And it isn't just pastors. It is every single one of us in whatever the area of ministry is that God has called us to. I'm convinced that God uh, called me uh, into serving him as a pastor so early in my Christian life to just honestly just to keep me out of trouble. 
And uh, I don't know if I'm going to have any reward by the time uh, I get to heaven. I think uh, 90% of this is just saying, okay, now I saved him. How can I keep him out of trouble? I'll keep him so busy that his in-basket's going to be six feet high and, uh, and he'll not have enough time to get into any kind of, uh, uh, you know, a mess as a result of it. There can be a lot of reasons for why he calls us individually to the things that he calls us to. And so, uh, the, uh, beautiful as we see the age, their obedience to uh, this calling. Now, they didn't know what they were getting into, and again, uh, uh, quoting another pastor I have su- such great respect for, certainly uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, he talks about how uh, God called him and Kay, I don't know, to somewhere in Arizona to be a pastor in their early pastorate, and, uh, and how God called him young, and he uh, made the quip, uh, God called me before I knew what I was getting into. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, You want to obey God's calling sometimes before you know everything that you're getting into or you'll talk yourself uh, out of it. So the wisdom uh, of all of it, the diversity of the body of of the men that are involved here, they come from very humble kind of background uh, and uh, of a diverse kind of background, very much a blue collar uh, background, not educated in the universities, but well well-versed in the scriptures. They were deep spiritually. Uh, to some degree, Jesus was going to take them into ultimate deaths, uh, depths in the, in the new covenant. But in, in light of the hour, as he lists the 12, I wonder how many of them uh, would be uh, for wearing masks or not wearing masks. And how willing are we to, even in the very smallest thing like this, that is demanded for unity in the body of Christ, not just in this church, but in every church. Uh, The willingness to uh, allow broad, broad diversity of opinion and diversity of personality uh, to thrive within uh, a local church. Never is God's word in play on it, uh, we're not talking about that. That's non-negotiable, but other things. Everybody's uh, views and perspectives are important. But what is important is, is that we don't then determine that we are so right that everyone has to become exactly like us. And it, takes, it would take Jesus himself to hold these people together. I mean, you got a tax collector, Levi, here, and then you've got uh, Judas, who is a zealot, who hated the Romans, and, and uh, as a part of the zealots, they were assassins of Roman soldiers. And yet they both get saved, and they become a part of this ministry uh, team. So, uh, viva la différence. Uh, it's wonderful, the diversity within the body uh, of Christ, and to be gracious toward um, that Uh, that diversity. If a church was made up of all of exactly the same uh, kind of person, what a dull, boring uh, church that would be. And uh, it takes all of us to reflect God's uh, personality, who, uh, who God is through, through our lives in any local church uh, and, and the broad diversity of personality 
background and all of the other things that can make us so unique from everyone else or for simply large blocks of people within within that church and so it's a it's a great uh, a great thing so we'll stop there and we'll pick up the uh, sermon on the plane next time i actually didn't want to get into it and then stop halfway and uh so uh, I'm happy uh, to stop here. And so um, I know you're happy that I'm happy. And so let's stand together now. And we'll have the worship team come out and we'll close in prayer and uh, close in a worship song. If you're here tonight and uh, inside, outside, at home, or whatever it might be, and you are not yet uh, a Christian, look at this Jesus. Look at the Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus that your uh, uh, cultural uh, anthropology professor uh, told you about or somebody else who was hostile uh, toward him because of sin in their own life that they didn't want to, uh, to give up and all. But look at the Jesus of this Bible. And, uh, and if you have never come to put your faith in Him uh, for salvation, uh, then to do that uh, this evening. And there'll be pastors that'll be up in front by the screen outside who would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God. But if you need prayer for any area of your life tonight, something that we've talked about tonight or something else, don't carry it alone into the week now, uh, coming in weighted down by the world and going out with all of the same weights. Let somebody pray for you and, and care for you tonight. They would love to do that. Father, we thank you.